Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yaggs. Well, thanks once again, Gary Changway, and welcome once again, my friends, to the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm your host, David Yaz. I'm a proud alum of the law school, class of 93. Used to be the publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. My day job now is a vice president at Bernstein Global Wealth Management, which is actually sort of apropos of our topic today. We're going to talk about the law as it relates to investors. And our guest today has done some very interesting research in the area specifically of shareholder activism. In fact, he's written a paper called The Plight of the Individual Investor in Securities Class Actions. That's soon to be published in the Northwestern University Law Review. And here he is, our guest today, David Weber, who is an associate professor of law at the BU Law School. His research focuses on the regulation of financial markets with an emphasis on studying securities regulation using both empirical and traditional legal methods. He's examining how institutional investors, particularly public pension funds and labor union funds, use litigation, shareholder voting, and other forms of corporate governance activism to manage and enhance their investments. So welcome to the show, David, and thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start it off by talking about your background and how did you get into this? Because it's a pretty sort of unique corner of the legal world. Tell us about that. Well, prior to starting my career in academia, I was a securities and corporate litigator in New York for several years. And in that capacity, I had the opportunity to represent shareholders in a couple of different uh, class actions. Um, These were securities fraud class actions in which a CEO or company committed a major fraud, or also some deal cases where the board or senior managers uh, basically seemed to be pushing a merger or an acquisition that benefited themselves and not so much the shareholders. And in the process of litigating those cases, you know, I couldn't help but notice that several of them were run uh, or brought by public pension funds and labor union funds. Mm-hmm. And these funds were um, had a, a broader agenda than just bringing these kinds of litigations challenging corporate or uh, misbehavior, but also uh, a- acted outside the litigation sphere, bringing shareholder voting initiatives and other things designed to kind of challenge the way corporations were run. And so that is what sparked my interest in this kind of shareholder activism, which I now have a chance to explore in more detail uh, as an academic. So tell us, what does that encompass when you say shareholder activism? What sort of actions are we talking about? Well, shareholder activism is a broad umbrella phrase that's used to describe really almost any initiatives brought by shareholders to affect the way corporations are governed or run. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I recently had a guest at my shareholder activism seminar uh, from the Office of Investment for the AFL-CIO. And uh, they came and spoke about their ultimately successful efforts uh, as shareholders in Home Depot to unseat Home Depot's then-CEO, Robert Nardelli. Mm-hmm. Nardelli had made hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation 
uh, over a period of years while Home Depot's share price stagnated and while it continued to lose ground to, say, competitors like Lowe's. Mm. And so part of the concern motivating that kind of shareholder activism was this issue of the disconnect between executive compensation and actual performance of the company. Uh, so shareholder activism can apply to, to litigation, to shareholder voting efforts, to a broad array of activities in which shareholders try to step in to change governance structure or management of the company. So, I mean, and really, as shareholders taking things into their, their own hands, is it is it rare or are we seeing more of this? Because it, it occurs to me that something like that for the shareholders of Home Depot to have to organize it seems like a monumental task. Does this that sort of thing come up all that often? It's certainly become more and more prevalent, um, although it still, I think, remains the exception to the rule. There have been a number of changes that have been instituted in part at the behest of shareholders that have made this kind of activism more possible. So one recent example is the adoption of say-on-pay votes um, uh, through Dodd-Frank in which shareholders get a vote on the compensation package for senior managers of the company and can actually say, vote uh, up or down on the uh, compensation package. So um, it's true that one of the reasons why we're seeing an increase in shareholder activism is because we have institutional investors that are capable of organizing it, but it still does remain an uphill battle for shareholders. And I think uh, it's why they, they tend to be pretty selective in terms of the types of issues that they try to bring uh, to the board or to, to um, investors overall uh, through their activist efforts. Right. So you decided to study this in uh, in a more... I guess systematic and, and with a legal eye towards it, um, and we ha- so you you completed this paper recently, plight of the individual investor. Tell us about the paper and what you are out to accomplish with that. Sure. Well, one of the issues that I think uh, comes up when we talk about shareholder activism is this question of well, who should speak for shareholders? Which shareholders should be the voice of shareholders? And I I look at this issue specifically in the context of litigation in my paper, The Plight of the Individual Investor in Securities Class Actions. So when a securities class action is brought, let's say there's a fraud at a company and the shareholders decide to sue, the law has a pretty rigid procedure for selecting who the class representative will be. Um, Typically, institutional investors are favored, and that's done by saying whoever has the largest loss in the fraud will be the presumptive class representative, the presumptive lead plaintiff. And um, and so it, it's the pretty explicit policy that favors the selection of institutional investors to represent shareholders in these kinds of cases. And so one of the motivations for writing the paper is to just put the question on the table, um, are institutions really representative of the class of shareholders? What about, for example, individual investors. And I I point in the paper to the fact that there seem to be a number of areas where um, institutional and individual shareholder interests may conflict, and that can sometimes present some problems. 
Mm-hmm. And so was that something that surprised you? I, I don't imagine that you had the title of the paper before you set out to write it, or did, or did you? The title kind of, uh, I take it, gives away your your thesis and that the individual investor can get lost in the shuffle. But uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it is possible that individual investor interests can be marginalized when institutions are running the show. Um, I identify in the paper uh, a number of areas of conflict that don't have to break down along institutional individual lines, but I think tend to do so. So, for example, there are conflicts and issues raised by derivatives trading that tends to be done more by institutions. There are conflicts between plaintiffs who still hold a stake in the company uh, versus plaintiffs who have sold their stake and just want to maximize the amount of damage award that is uh, given out in the suit. There are conflicts over corporate governance reform. And it's not to say that these are devastating and totally insoluble conflicts, but they are issues that tend to break down uh, along institutional individual lines. And I explore them in some depth and detail in this particular paper. So at one point in your paper, more than once in your paper, you speak of individual investors being inherently unsophisticated. Why, why is that critical? Well, uh, I actually reject that view that okay. they're inherently unsophisticated. You're certainly right. I talk about it in the paper. And I think it's part of um, a bit of a paternalistic view that is sometimes uh, embedded in the securities laws directly, but more often is sort of an unspoken kind of assumption. Uh, I think a view that... Um, seems to be prevalent out there as individual investors uh, can often be seen as being almost per se unsophisticated. We tend to think of institutions, on the other hand, as being per se sophisticated. In fact, there are certain areas of the securities laws that define them as such. Uh, Some parts of the securities laws define institutions as accredited investors, and that entitles them to all sorts of things and may also give them less protection in certain instances. But the basic uh, concern, I think, about having an individual investor as a class representative um, is this concern that, well, they might be unsophisticated. Um, And so I try to, I, I actually survey the finance literature in the paper, and I point to at least you know some evidence that suggests that there's at least a subset of individual investors out there uh, who are sophisticated, who do seem to make really good choices, and might therefore be uh, suitable class representatives, uh, at least for the individual members of the class. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act. So that's the PSL. PSLRA. It does not roll off the tongue. That law, tell us about how that, what you found out about that law and how it impacts the shareholders we're talking about. Well, the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act was passed in 1995, uh, and it's uh, certainly probably the most dominant act shaping private securities litigation today. And that's the act that did, among other things, created this presumption that institutional investors um, uh, be selected as lead plaintiffs. It's not hardwired into the law. The actual law presumes that whoever has the largest stake in the case will be appointed the lead plaintiff. But it's pretty clear that the purpose of setting up the law that way was to invite institutional investors to participate. So now when uh, judges have to select a lead plaintiff in a securities class action, they follow that procedure. And that will, uh, and that usually means that at least when there's an institutional applicant, you very often end up with an institutional lead plaintiff. And by the way, I think in many respects, 
that reform has been successful. Uh, part of what we were trying to get away from was total uh, control of these cases by plaintiff lawyers um, who may have run those cases primarily in their own interests rather than those of shareholders. And institutions have brought some really positive things to the table here. They tend to be uh, motivated because of their large losses. Um, they have brought a measure of sophistication. They have access to legal counsel. They often have financial expertise. They may have legal expertise. So they actually, uh, in some respects, have done a good job in terms of monitoring class counsel, reducing attorney's fees, making sure that the class action is being litigated in the interests of shareholders and not in the interests of the lawyers. Um, but nevertheless, I do think that some improvements can be made, in part because I think there are certain structural conflicts uh, between institutions and individuals in these actions. Right. Uh, so we are close to a, a break here, David, but let me ask you one more question before we take that break. And we've heard a lot about corporate corporate governance reform in the in the post-Enron era. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I, I think that cor- corporate governance reform is a, it's a, it's a broad topic. I certainly think that uh, some of it is, is justified. I think the primary thrust of corporate governance reform has been an effort to make boards of directors and make senior corporate managers less insulated from the consequences of their actions and to make them more responsive to shareholders, to kind of improve checks and balances within the corporation and to improve democratic governance of corporations. Mm -hmm. Um, So some corporate governance initiatives, like, for example, splitting the, the role of the CEO and the chairman of the board, have been designed to improve oversight, right, not just have the imperial CEO who can uh, run the company primarily for their own benefit uh, without a check or a balance on that. So corporate governance reform um, has certainly been a hot topic for the last decade and is probably one of the primary agendas of shareholder activists. Uh, and I think it'll continue to, to, to be so for some time. Talking with David Weber here from the BU Law School on the subject of shareholder litigation and the plight of the individual investor in securities class actions. We're going to take a break here, but please return with us on the other side and we will continue the discussion. Thanks. Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. We return to the Boston University School of Law podcast. This is your host, David Yaz, and we are talking today with David Weber, who's an associate professor of law at the law school. We're talking about his soon-to-be-published paper, which is entitled The Plight of the Individual Investor in Securities Class Actions and some really cutting-edge thoughts on these types of cases from Professor Weber. So 
David, getting back into our discussion, I guess the question looms as to how do we remedy these these conflicts between the institutional and individual investors and that phenomenon of the individual investors getting lost. In, in, in your paper, you talk about perhaps the best remedy for the courts is to appoint representative individual investors as co-lead plaintiffs so that they have a, a seat at the table. Uh, tell us about that and how that could be what helps alleviate the situation. Well, uh, my concern here is that basically to find a way for to kind of restore the voice of individual investors to these class actions. And so, I, as you mentioned, I propose that there should be a co-lead plaintiff structure. Basically, once you identify that institutional lead plaintiff, that the court should similarly identify a motivated and sophisticated individual lead to serve as a co-lead plaintiff um, in the action. And the basic idea here is, as you said, to um, restore the voice of individuals, whether it be you know individuals who have sold their stake in the company and are looking to maximize compensation, um, or individuals who may not have the kinds of conflicts created by derivatives trading or legal issues that can be created by derivatives trading. You give that person a seat at the table and help them to have a say in directing how this litigation goes. I think that that could um, help this problem of the marginalization of individual investors. But I also think that this type of solution doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, because it still retains the institutional investor uh, role. And I think that's, you know, that's a positive thing. Institutions do have a measure of sophistication and motivation that they can bring to these cases. And as long as we can just adjust the incentives a bit so that the individuals are taken into account, I think we can benefit from this hybrid leadership structure. Well, in, in the paper, you also talk about that settlement conferences and court hearings in these in these lawsuits can seem like confrontations between financial institutions, meaning they're, they're battles between simply corporations and that including individuals you suggest who've been really hurt by the fraud could put a human face on that. T- tell us about that and, and whether that's a possibility in the future. Yeah, well, I think the issue here is that, look, when you're talking about you know a, a fraud litigation or you're talking about a deal litigation, at the end of the day, what you're really talking about is uh, fights over money and who's going to pay. Somebody has been harmed. Somebody's been defrauded. And the question is, how much should they be compensated and who should do the compensating? And so oftentimes, I think, uh, when you have one large impersonal institution negotiating across the table from another large impersonal institution, uh, it can sometimes devolve to a conversation purely about dollars and cents. And I think that what gets lost in that discussion is how individual human beings sometimes are devastated by these kinds of frauds, for example. And so I think that it could actually benefit the shareholder class if you have that individual voice in the room so that it's not just a question of how, say, some large institutional investor's balance sheet was impacted by the fraud, but you get that kind of personal voice in the room, which I think, you know, may not, as I point out in the paper, doesn't increase the the strength of the legal merits of the case, but may have um, emotive or psychological factors that could work to the benefit of uh, of the plaintiff class when they're in settlement negotiations or when they're before a judge or things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on the subject of what's next for Professor David Weber, I understand that 
there is not so much a part two to this, but you are looking at an empirical study on the role of institutional investors in mergers and acquisitions litigation. Can you give us a little preview of that and what you're finding? Sure. Um, much mergers and much of mergers and acquisitions litigation um, takes place, as many people know, in Delaware. And that in that kind of litigation, what you have is usually an allegation that um, the board of directors of the target company uh, is basically trying to push a deal on the shareholders that isn't favorable to them, but that the board or senior managers want to see go through because of private benefits or triggering of options or uh, golden parachutes or what have you. And so um, institutional investors are similarly favored uh, as lead plaintiffs in those types of actions in Delaware. They primarily take place in Delaware. Uh, and so I'm investigating, you know, their role. How have institutional investors changed litigation in Delaware? What effect are they having? And by and large, though I do think some of the same conflicts exist between institutions and individuals, or different kinds of conflicts, but though I do think there are conflicts between institutions and individuals in these cases too, I do find that institutions seem to be selecting the right kinds of cases and at least in some instances may be getting better results. Um, I'm continuing to assess that now and collecting data on it and analyzing it, but that's the next project in the works for me. Well, very good. So the paper that we've been talking about, however, the plight of the individual investor in securities class actions, where can people find that? That should be published by the Northwestern University Law Review in April of 2012. You should be able to find it on the website of the Northwestern University Law Review uh, or on the you know Westlaw or Lexis. And um, uh, probably you can get uh, a hard copy of it as well by contacting the Northwestern University Law Review directly. Well, very good. Now, we, I thank you very much for joining us today, David, and, and filling us in on this, this topic, which not only is it interesting and, and a sort of a part of the legal world, as I said, that you wouldn't normally think of, but it, it seems to be ever-changing and growing. So we appreciate it. If people wanted to get in touch with you, is there a way they can do that? Yeah, the best way to reach me is by email. My email address is dhweber at bu.edu, two Bs and Weber, and I'd be happy to talk about this subject further with folks who are interested. Well, okay. Get ready for a deluge of emails about interested parties. We, we, the podcast is listened to around the world, as I'm sure you know, David. So thanks very much. Very special thanks to David Weber for joining us and to all of our listeners. You can find all the editions of the BU Law Podcast on the Legal Talk Network, the BU Law website, as well as on iTunes. I'm David Yes. Thanks for listening and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.